This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. Amen. Amen. Uh, like most things, uh, when you get involved in any kind of discipline, any kind of new activity or skill, uh, there comes a point in it where uh, you're at the point where you're wondering if you're still growing. Uh, this is with any kind of sport, any kind of skill. This is also true for the faith. And what you see uh, here in the Colossian church is they started to question, are they growing? Uh, they start to question, if God has risen from the dead and that's who we are in Christ, then how come I'm still struggling with these things? And so I'm sure for some of you who've been uh, of faith for quite some time, you've actually come across that, right? This moment where you start to recognize, man, I've been, I've been struggling with this habitual sin for quite some time. What's wrong with me? And usually two things happen at that time. Uh, one, uh, you start to get jaded. You start to 
listen, but not with the same kind of expect, ex, you know, the expectation and hope. You start to get jaded, and you start to lose interest. You start to try a little bit less spiritually. You start to simply guard yourself from maybe the worst things and just try to maintain. If you ever have done that, you start to recognize it's a quick uh, slope downward uh, to a life where you start to feel very far from the Lord. And then there's the other response when you start to recognize what's wrong with me and you start to kind of look yourself in the mirror and you say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it my all again. Maybe you remember the days of college, or if you're in college, maybe you remember the days of youth, and you start to think, okay, I'm going to give it my all. But also, if you've done that, you start to recognize after a week, right, or after a day, you start to recognize it's quite hard to push yourself spiritually for quite some time. And so the question is, after you've been, uh, you know, of faith for quite some time, what does it really mean to grow? And here in this passage for the Colossian church, he starts to, start to kind of experiment or investigate different, what he calls elemental works or different philosophies and deceptions. Human traditions is, is the things that they struggled with. They wanted to add something else on top of the gospel so that they could grow. And so what Paul is doing here is reminding them these are the basics of faith, the basics in terms of how to grow and change. And hopefully you walk away with just being reminded, but more than that, being convicted in your heart, okay, I just need to get back to some of the basics, especially in this season as we've, you know, we're in COVID still, uh, but we have now, you know, looser restrictions. And the hope is to not just live as if it's COVID and COVID is going to, you know, guide your faith, but really asking yourself, okay, if I am a believer, what does it really look like to be intentional in this season so that you can choose what your faith will look like in this new season as COVID's changing? So the first thing that he talks about are these rivals within our hearts. So he focuses on the heart throughout this whole passage. He talks about the heart many, many, many times throughout this whole uh, uh, you know, uh, letter. He talks about what you need to do, but it's always focused and the heart, and I really want you to be able to see this. So in verse 1, as he talks about these rivals, he says, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Do you see that? Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Who's he writing to? He's writing to believers. And so the question is, why is he telling believers to seek Christ. It's like telling a runner to go run. It's like telling a teacher to go teach. Shouldn't they already be seeking? And that's what you start to find out. They stop seeking. They start doing maybe the traditions of the faith without seeking the heart, seeking the person. And that can literally be translated, seek the things, as set your heart. That's how the TNIV translates it. Seek the things above can literally be translated, set your heart on the things above. This is the language of love. He's talking heart language right here. When he's telling you to seek God, not just in action, but in your heart, resolve to seek him, he's saying in your heart, love him. That's what, that's what the heart does. 
it seeks things that it desires. And then you start to recognize all the more the different rivals of the heart in verse 5. Right? Read it with me. It says, put, put to death, therefore, what is earthly. So you seek the things above, and he compares it to the earthly things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he gives a very clear warning on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You know, when we think about the, the early church, we romanticize it, don't we? We think it's this church that had, right, everything figured out. They had their discipleship program set. They knew how to evangelize. They, they, you know, you would think that this church in Colossians, in, in Colossae, right, that it was this beautiful church that you would want to be a part of. But would you want to be a part of this church where Paul is writing from prison the things that he hears about this church, sexual immorality. It's rampant. Impurity. Passion. I mean, I like this one. Evil desire. It's blatant. If you recognize this, this list, it goes more inward, right? Sexual immorality is the act of it. Impurity is a, is a, is a desire. Passion is the clear desire. Evil desire covetousness, idolatry. He gets at from the external what's going on to the internal and the progression is more and more evil, talking about idolatry, which is spiritual adultery. But Paul recognizes, even though he may have never met them, he knows what's in the heart. How does he know what's in the heart? Because he knows his heart. Right? As he grows in ministry, what does he call himself? the chief of all sinners. This is not simply, oops, I did that sin again, right? Oops, I did it again. This is more like highway to hell, right? It's more like if they've chosen a direction, I'm going to live this way, I'm going to be stubborn about it. It's not, oops, dang it, it's I don't care. I just want to live the way that I want to live. I'm sure you've recognized that in your heart. I think if you're honest, whether you've acted out on it or not, I'm sure you've recognized that in your heart. You try and you try and you try and people let you down. Church lets you down. Pastors let you down. Teachers let you down. Friends let you down. And you feel alone. You try and you try and you try and you feel like you can't, you can't beat the sin. I remember uh, talking to a friend of mine. Uh, he was this kind of older brother of mine. Uh, really looked out for me when I was younger. Uh, little did I know, he had this whole crazy party life. And so when I was in youth group and he was in college, he would, you know, he would drive out and, and you, know, grab, you know, grab a meal with me and just hang out. We would just play and fun. Uh, as I graduated college and started to understand this dark side that he had, that he had I start to recognize there's seasons where he's very involved in church and very seasons where he was not involved in church. He was, he just, he had, you know, he disappeared. And so he was a good friend and so we would, you know, meet up and you know, I would ask him, hey, what's going on? He would say, you know, I love God. But then he would also say, but I love girls. I love God and I love girls and I don't know how to manage that. And so his life is, 
when he's convicted about God, when his, when his heart is passionate about God, he would go to God. He would read the Bible. He would go to church. He would do small group. He would do the retreat. He would, he would do everything that you would think in terms of how to live for God. But then a friend of his would invite him to a party, and he would go to that party, and then to another party, and to another club. And then the next thing he knows, he's doing something that he knows he shouldn't do. And then what does he think? He thinks, well, I've already done that. Why not just continue to do it? And he continues to go, and go you know, further and further into this world. And then after he starts to feel empty and hopeless, starts to recognize you know, the false promises of this world, he goes back. So he continues to go through this cycle. And so one time when, I was, when he was in this cycle uh, of you know, just struggling and this kind of sin, I asked him, why do you do it? And his response was simple. The heart wants what it wants. And I asked him, well, why don't you change? He's like, how do you change the heart? That's what I think Paul is talking about. There are rival desires in our hearts that you have to be aware of. If you can understand the gospel, right? An innocent, pure, holy God, the only way to pay for our sin was for that God to come and die and pay that penalty. So you have to understand, sin is this evil, dark, kind of, you know, personification of evil. That's what sin is often described in the Old Testament. There are rivals in our hearts. And so what does Paul tell us to do? Because there are rivals in our hearts, seek the things that are above. When you feel defeated, Seek the things that are above. If some of you are in that season right now, as I tell you in that, you know, that moment, in that season of just having no desire, if you were to hear me just simply say, well, no, seek him. You'll, you know, what, you'll, what you'll respond with is, well, what good is that? Pastor, I know that. Pastor, I know I should seek him. So you telling me to seek him while I'm struggling with all these really bad things, is not helpful. So the question is, why does Paul do that? Right? These sins that he, that he talks about, we would consider the big bad sins. Right? That's kind of how we would frame this list of vices, these struggles. What he's trying to do is not simply tell you what to do. What he's trying to do is tell you the truth of your heart. There's a difference between what you feel and what's real. And so he's talking about the truth of the heart. Because how did he start off in verse 1? If then you have been raised with Christ. Is he questioning the gospel? Okay, well, if, if Jesus rose, I don't know if he did. If Jesus rose, then seek him. Is that what he's saying? Or is he writing in such a way that you would for a moment pause and either agree or disagree. Did Christ raise from the dead or not? You either agree or disagree. So he starts off by saying, if Christ has been raised, if you believe in that truth, that God became man, lived a life you couldn't live, died a death that you should have died, if you believe that, seek the things above. And he talks about things that are above, the things that are below. What's he simply saying? There's a better way. So he's, now he's talking about heart affection. 
He's not simply saying, do the right thing. And I really want you to understand, Christianity is not simply about doing the right thing. Yes, there is a right and there is a wrong. But the whole law, what it points to is love. It's better. So that's what Paul is getting at. Yes, these sins, these rival sins, yes, it tastes good. But you all know where it leads to. It leads to death. It leads to an emptiness, a meaninglessness. So he says, seek the things above, it's better. But then what does he say? Seek the, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He talks about not just Christ the person, but his position. What's he saying? He's saying, think about Jesus, yes, who he is, but also his authority. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's, a, he's in a position of authority, and he's in a position of intercession. The idea is you are not fighting alone. You are not fighting with your strength. That's what Paul is saying when he says, seek him. When you have no desire and you want to tap out, what Jesus is saying is you can never the goal was never for you to fight on your own strength. Seek him because he's better. Seek him because he has authority over sin, because he's defeated it. And seek him because his prayer, he's, in, he's interceding on behalf of you. And then verse 3, he goes back to the gospel. For you died, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the only time in the New Testament this idea of hidden with hidden uh, with Christ is spoken. They talk about how it's a reference to the Old Testament and how we were hidden in God. It's this refuge, it's a safe place. I think that's what's, what you know, he's alluding to. But also what he's alluding to is the fact that our reality is actually hidden. Right? When you play hide and seek, you're, someone's hidden, you can't see. That's the idea. What Paul is saying is, I know in your heart you feel like you've got nothing. I know in your heart you feel like you just want to give up. But remember, your reality, the truth is hidden. So there's going to be moments in your life where you feel like there's nothing, but the reality is, is God is in position of authority. He intercedes for you, and you have the strength to respond. This is one of the most assuring, reassuring things in the Christian faith. Why? Because if you've lived the Christian faith long, en long enough, what do you recognize? I'm a pretty bad Christian, right? If you live this Christian life, right, what the kid says, for a minute, right, which means like a really long time. When you've been a Christian for a long time, right, in your 20s, I mean, I remember in my teens, I used to think, man, I'm the best. I used to literally think I'm the best, right? Complete pride, you know, blindness in, all that stuff. In my 20s, I started to really recognize, man, like, like, I've got some issues, right? And then you get married, and you start to recognize, I'm not the only one. She's, she has it too, right? But then, after five years of marriage, what happens? Oh, that's my fault. And then you have kids, and then you're like, oh, Lord, like, what? There's no hope for them, right? And in your 30s, you're starting to recognize this more and more. And for me, as I get into my 40s, there's really none of that, like, hyping myself up anymore. 
right? There is no, like, I'm going to do this. It's like, God, I screwed up. I need your grace. That's kind of what happens. And the idea is, no matter how dead you feel right now, this is the truth of every Christian. Though there may be many rival loves, Though your heart may fail, though the desires may be, may be small, you genuinely love Christ. Do you know that? You are a sinner saved by grace, and because of the authority of God, he has planted within you a new desire. And though it may be small, though it may be suppressed underneath all this other bad stuff, there's a heartbeat. You want to love Christ. You want to love Christ. Right? Don't you know that? Right? I'm sure you sense it. That's why you have guilt. Guilt is grace. So sometimes you're just kicking yourself because you have guilt. But you have to also recognize that guilt, that conviction, it's grace. That you genuinely love Christ. Tell your neighbor you love Christ. It may be small, but you love Christ. And then as we go on, not only does he talk about the authority and the intercession, the prayer of Jesus, he then talks about the nature, the truth of our hearts. And I really need you to understand this. Because in verse, you know, in verse, uh, you know, in the beginning, right, in verse, what, one, when he says, seek the things that TNAV translated as set your hearts on him. And then in verse two, it says set your minds on him. Do you recognize that, that order? He says, set your hearts so you can set your mind. This is very, very different than how we understand things as people who are a product of the Enlightenment. We think the opposite, right? We think set your mind on him so you can set your heart on him. So isn't that what we always do? That's, that's kind of how we end up doing church. That's kind of how we end up uh, you know, doing your own, you know, Small groups, it's so discussion-oriented. But what you're going to see in here is the basics of the faith. What he is showing us, what we often think, is if you, if, we, if you learn enough and you know the right things, that you'll love the right things, right? That's kind of how we think, to set your mind and set your heart, right? If you learn the right things, then you'll do the right things. But what he is saying is set your hearts on him, then you'll set your mind on him. So then what he's saying is we think this. We think, think rightly in order to love him. That's what we think. I need to get the right doctrine in my mind. I need to figure out how to conquer this sin in my mind. But what he's saying is the Bible says love him in order to think rightly. If you ever think about how you daydream, that's exactly what's happening, right? You open up the word to spend some time with him. What happens if you're in the book of Levit Leviticus, right? One minute in, start thinking about that thing. And that thing is the thing that you love, right? No one's telling you, think about sports. No one's telling you, think about fashion. What's happening? Because your heart's set on something you're thinking in that way. And what Paul is showing us is how we work as human beings. Set your heart on something, then you think in that certain way. James K.A. Smith 
what he calls us is bobbleheads. He's a Christian philosopher. He calls us, we are so a product of the Enlightenment that all we think that we're ahead on a stick, but instead we have to understand we are lovers first, men and women of desire first, that we are hearts on a stick. And if you can't understand that, you'll continue to try to think your way out of sin as opposed to acting and believing and resolving your way out of sin. He does, uh, Paul does this all throughout Scripture. Uh, scripture does this in all different places. Another clear way to show you, show you this is in Philippians 1. It's on your screen, and it's a well-known prayer that many of you are aware of. It says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It seems like he is saying that he's concerned about your knowledge so that your knowledge would abound more and more and more. But what does it say? That your love may abound more and more and more with knowledge and discernment, that your love may be knowledgeable, that your affections would be wise, so that you may approve what is excellent. Right? That's how we eat, right? I can tell you about this great, you know, Korean restaurant down the street. They do everything so great. You say, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. And then I take you there. They start making the dish. And then you taste it and you say, ooh, that's good. What's happening is your heart knows it and your mind is agreeing. That's what sin is. Your heart tastes it, so your mind knows you shouldn't do it, but your heart likes it, so now you're conflicted. And so what he's showing us is the basics of change. So often we think, okay, I'll learn enough, and then I'll change how I think, and then I'll change how I live. What he's saying is, no, resolving your heart. I am going to pursue the better. I don't know it yet, but I take it in faith. And as you do it, your heart starts to believe, right? If you're going to discern what is best, right? If you can approve what is excellent. Isn't that so interesting? So that you may approve what is excellent. That your love may abound so that you could approve of what's excellent. If you're going to discern what is best, you have to first decide in your heart what you will love and what you will not love. So then that's why he says to this group who is struggling in major habitual type sins, this is why he says in verse 5, put to death. Do they know this? Yes, they know this. Do they know it's wrong? Yes, they know it's wrong. But he's saying you have to resolve in your heart to not do it so that you would know in your heart, okay, it really is wrong. Which then goes into the practices of the heart. He's going to get very practical. Because if you start to understand what Paul is saying, you'll start to kind of ask yourself, okay, if I love this thing, and I can't help but to continue to do this thing, and Paul is telling me to not do this thing, how does that work, right? So he gets really, really practical. So in verse 5, put to death. In verse 8, put them away. Verse 9 is 
a clear representation of what the gospel is, seeing that you've been put off with the old self, with its practices, and having put on the new, the first set is about taking off, and then now the next set in 12 and, 12 and verse 14 is about putting on. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In verse 14, and above all of these, put on love. How do we put away something that we love? What, Paul, what James is getting at, what Paul is getting at, is this simple idea that we are hearts on a stick, and the more and more we continue to do that action, we teach our own hearts that that's what we want. This is how James K.A. Smith says it. We are often immersed in cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. So every time you eat that thing that you shouldn't eat, oh, that's good. Right? You're teaching your heart, your gut, something. Every time you do that thing in your heart, you say, oh, that's good. You're teaching yourself. That though you know it's wrong, that this is what you want. And every time you do it, he writes, we recalibrate our hearts so that that is a thing that we want. And that is what you call addiction. That's what addiction is. Things that you know you don't want to do, but you can't help to do it, because though in your mind you think it's wrong, in your heart you love it. It's everything to you. So what, what Paul is getting at it's helping us understand how the heart works. It's, a, it's the language of putting off and putting on. What is that language? It's the language of how you get dressed. Right? You take something off and you put something on, right? How many of you coming in today, do you have your PJs underneath your clothes? Some of you may have actually come in your PJs, but so you, you know, you're the exception to the rule, right? But for all of us, we took off whatever we slept in and we put on new clothes. How many of you last night, when you were about to go to sleep, did you put your PJs on over the clothes you wore yesterday? You don't do that. Paul is showing us the nature of the heart. The nature of the heart is you can't ever just stop your heart from loving. But you can only replace your old loves with new ones. You have to put off and that's, that's what we've been trying to do for many of us. Stop that thing. Stop that sin. And you're only focused on shutting that off, taking it off, but not focused on putting something else on because you are not a brain on a stick and you think your way to goodness and you think your way to love. You are a heart on a stick. You love something at some point. We're born this way. And so what, what Paul is trying to get at is you cannot control your heart, as my friend was saying. The heart wants what it wants. So what do you do when you believe the gospel, but the heart is somewhere you know, completely different? What do you do? He's saying do the right things in order for you to love the right things. That's what he is saying. You don't love the gospel as much as you want to love. How do you love the gospel more? How do you love the church more? How do you become a more generous, a generous person? And all of these things, it's the same thing. You simply start and you do it 
It's this habitual, weekly, ordinary thing that shapes you. Right? That's why something like youth group is so monumental. Because before you were able to really understand the gospel, it's something like a youth group that showed you how to love God. But it's not done in a legalistic way. Right? And that's how we will often take a message like this. Okay, I get it. I just need to do more things. So that's your little you know, to-do agenda. I need to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. To attain something. But what does, how does Paul, uh, Paul write in verse 13, right? Bearing with one another, so meaning even the church back then, they had to bear with one another. There's people that didn't, they didn't like in their own church. Bear with one another, and if uh, one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, how? As the Lord has forgiven you. It's all a response to the gospel. But even this language of putting off and putting on, dying to yourself, how does he start this whole thing? You have died with him and you are raised with him. And then from there he's saying, so therefore put to death. Therefore put to death. Therefore put on this. What he's saying is become who you already are. Right? That's what he's saying. This is true of you. You are hidden with Christ. That reality of who you are, it's already hidden with Christ. And so you're not trying to put to death so that it would die. It's what Paul is saying is you have already died. This is your reality. So therefore put to death. You have already been raised with Christ. Therefore put this on. For God has the authority, he intercedes for you, you are not fighting alone, and so that is how you continue to live this faith. It's not on your own, it's with God. And you are allowing God, right, the word is let the word dwell. God is the one doing something. It feels like you're doing it, but God is the one doing something. And then he finishes this whole thing off with this whole idea of support for the heart. Just like someone who may have struggled with alcohol, what do they do? They don't fight it alone. They go into a community. They join AA. There's a community, there's a system to be able to fight this rival desire. And that's what he gets into. It's fascinating. It's so subtle throughout Scripture. But there is no other way Scripture sees it. All of Scripture, almost all of Scripture, is written to a community. If you can understand that, your first step is putting yourself in community. No matter how hard it is, you put yourself in community because you recognize you cannot fight the rival desires within your heart. So in verse 5, he talks about these crazy big sins, right, sexual immorality, impurity. And then he switches in verse 18. And if, and if, you, if you notice this, but all of these are com- community-type sins, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And then what, verse 9? Do not lie to one another. If you've struggled with sin, you definitely have put uh, struggling with lying, something low, and struggling with a sexual sin, something high. So why does he even put those two even in comparison? The whole idea is if you are lying to a community about your own struggles, you have forfeited the gift of that community. 
right? And so as he continues on in ver- from, from verse 9, do not lie to one another, look at verse 11. It seems so random. There's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave-free. But then it should simply say, you are a new creation. It doesn't. It has this kind of weird statement, but Christ is all and in all. What does that mean? The idea is we often individualize the gospel and we think, okay, I have died, I have been raised. And therefore, there is no Greek or Jew or all these things. And then he's saying, yes, that's true. And he just simply says, but you, plural, you are all and in all. To, to even clarify it more, in verse 15, he says, you are one body. You are one body. Your identity is, yes, you are raised with Christ. But Paul doesn't even think about it in terms of individuals. He's saying you as a church, you are raised with him. If you think when you struggle, I need to do better, the response that we should have as a church is we need to do better. We need to be the church. And so he continues on, right, in verse 12, all these now things that we need to put on, compassion, kindness, humility, right, bearing with one another. And then in verse 14, you can underline this, but above all, put on love, which is the key, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It shows us the way in which Paul sees Christian obedience, Christian sanctification. It's never individual. It's always done in community. If you do not act in love, if you do not pursue love, that's one of the keys of fighting sin, that you actually live out what you believe. And what starts to happen, I'm sure you've done this, you put yourself out there, you try to serve you're nervous, you're anxious. But what do you find a year later? Because you've chosen to love, you've put yourself in a community where others feel safe, where you feel safe, and now you have a support. You're not fighting alone. And then he continues on, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I like how the TNV translates it. It gets said it a little bit more clearly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. What he is saying is the way in which what happens here, what's, a, what's, a picture, what's this a picture of? It's a picture of the church. That's how, he, that's how Paul is writing. He, he doesn't think of writing to you as an individual. He thinks of you of writing to, for example, Gospel City. How do you change? You teach one another. So how do we teach one another? Immediately we're probably thinking, okay, one-to-one discipleship, small groups. What does he say? You teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through song. Every day, you, you put yourself out in the world, and every day your heart is being calibrated by the different things that you experience. What Paul is saying is once a week, you put yourself in a position where your heart is being recalibrated 
to the right affections. So every week when you do the things that you don't want to do, you're teaching your heart to love those things. And Paul is saying, come together weekly, teach one another. How do you teach one another? How do you teach the gospel to one another? Yes, through preaching, yes, through the study of the word, but through singing. James K. Smith says it this way, Work, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do, church. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is a gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. God transforms our hearts as we worship together. You can't conquer sin by outsmarting it. You can't conquer sin by outworking it. You can't conquer sin by having more passion. Those are all the wrong ways. It's what Paul would probably call the elemental ways or the worldly ways or the worldly tradition. The gospel conquers alone when we worship together, sing the gospel to each other. We are teaching our hearts to experience and therefore love the gospel. If you recognize the songs that we sing may be a little bit different than the songs that you might have sung back home. And there's, for the most part, nothing wrong with the songs back home. But we are very intentional here to always sing the gospel. So I'm not sure if you recognize that, but we're always trying to sing the gospel. Why? Because we are teaching one another to experience the gospel and therefore to love the gospel. And so today we sing, right, who breaks the power of sin and darkness. The idea is it's not just a good melody, but you're singing to another who truly has the power to, to destroy sin and darkness. Are we saying worthy is the lamb who was slain? What are we saying? We're trying to teach our hearts the right affections to worship the lamb. Christ that was slain for our sins. Another song that we sing is, All my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. This song specifically has taught me how to love God. Why? Because we sing this song at a funeral of one of our church members, and that church member was an infant. This child was born and passed away in that time of birth. And so this couple, the parents, in the funeral wanted to sing that song, The Goodness of God. So every time I sing this song, you know what I think about? That couple, their hands raised. Worshiping God all my life, God. You have been faithful, even in the greatest tragedy of my life. That's what singing does. Things that you already know, you start to believe and love in your heart. That's invitation. How do you grow as a believer? It is the ordinary, everyday work of meeting together the weekly work of meeting together. As we do this, I do encourage you, when we sing, sing. Worship. 
as you are singing the gospel, teaching one another the joys and the treasures of the gospel. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.